Tonight is the weekly English talk. Namatu Ratanatayasa. Today, uh, the talk falls on what happens to be my 30th birthday. So today we are quite busy with many activities. First thing in the morning we were up and we went to free some fish. We set free 31 fish into the, the lake. And then we went and offered alms food to the monks at the forest monastery. And then we offered robes. And then we came back to Wat Thai to offer to offer uh, <coughs> offer more robes and things which the monastery could use. So I'd like to take this opportunity to let everyone know because it's a chance for all of us to remember and to think of all of the good things which we've done and that everyone here should feel happy for the good things that we've done. Even if you weren't involved, you can uh, you can you can join in with the giving. You can be a part of the giving by your appreciation. So we say this not to brag or something, but to uh, let everybody know so everyone can feel happy about about this. I'd also like to take the opportunity to thank everyone who helped out with all of the activities today. Even last night, all the work that people did putting together uh, these CDs and the photos that we gave out. <coughs> and the work people did trying to uh, get fish and birds, we almost had birds. But then they realized that the birds wouldn't be able to survive in the wild. So we didn't free birds. And then <coughs> all of the people who donated the robes, all of the people who worked to orchestrate the food, and uh, people who brought food, people who... Help to take care of my mother, people who helped to organize things here at the monastery, people who worked hard here while we were away. Uh, I feel very grateful for all of the help. And I think I'm very lucky to have such good friends. And I want to apologize on behalf of the center that I think often the center is not so uh, accessible for Western people here. I think the the problem is where it's a very Thai sort of place, and so often because of 
simple limits of being a human being that we often uh, accidentally cause uh, difficulties or confusion for people yeah. when we don't speak the language or when uh, when we don't read the language and we don't know what's going on it can be confusing when we don't understand the culture and so on so sometimes there's I think it can be difficult for Western people to come to practice here. But we have to think of also that these sort of difficulties are something that we shouldn't ever let get in our way. For myself, when I went to practice, I went to a completely Thai monastery in Thailand. And I had English teachers, but I didn't have any English Dhamma talk. There was no, there were no talks in English. There was, our teacher would gather us all together and give us some talk, maybe I think once or twice during our whole course. And apart from that, we just met with the teacher once a day, once a day. And it was difficult. It was hard to fit in with the culture and, you know, all of the confusion that comes from not really understanding the the Buddhist religion and the meditation practice, not having any background in what we're stepping into. But in the end, the most important is the relationship we have with our teacher and the once-a-day meeting that we have with our teacher. This is the core of the Course. The Lord Buddha said there, or sorry, as far as I understand, I'm not sure where exactly this came from, but my teacher always taught that in Buddhism there are three uh, fundamentals that you have to have in, as a meditator. The first one is you have to have a teacher. You can never be, you can never go far from a teacher unless you're planning to become a Buddha or a <coughs> unless you're planning to become a Buddha. And then it takes a long time, many, many, countless lifetimes to, to undertake. But if you're planning on practicing the Buddha's teaching and listening to the Buddha's teaching, you can't just read books and tapes and expect to uh, easily follow the path because you're not able to ask questions and get answers and the teacher is not able to give you advice based on your specific problems. This is the most important thing that I can see in meditation is being with a teacher who has been there. It's like traveling in the forest. When you're traveling in the forest, if you don't have a guide, you don't know where you're going. You've never been to the destination. You've never gone through this forest before. You can't find your way out. You don't have a clue. You can't see that this is a sign for this way and that is a sign and so on. Nothing means anything to you because you've never been there before. But when you have a teacher, when you have a guide, someone who's been there before, who's been through the forest, and they can point things out to you, they can tell you which way to go every step of the way because they've been there before. They've been through it, through it before. And they know how to guide people through the forest. So we have to sometimes put up with many difficulties. Uh, I think it's, it's also early to tell, but I think there are, will be some problems that Westerners will have to face coming here. This is obviously isn't an American meditation center.
And so uh, I think on the one hand we don't have to worry too much because we have many Thai meditators. Uh, but on the other hand, we have to watch and make sure that we're not uh, causing undue difficulty for people who maybe really have the uh, ability to complete the course. Some people just can't get through it. This, this is clear as well. It's much easier for people who have background, for instance, Thai people, to finish the course. This is clear. But I think it's, al it's also clear that there are some Western people who can, who can finish the course. And we have to try to give them the opportunity. The second thing you need in the meditation practice is to actually practice. Once you have a teacher, you can't just be content sitting with a teacher. This is, this is clear. You have to actually undertake the practice. And the third thing you need, just to uh, go through all of these, the third thing that you need is you need to guard your faculties. Guard your senses. The eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the heart. You have to make sure that you're uh, not giving rise to undue uh, hindrances at the eye, liking or disliking, at the ear, at the nose, at the tongue. You have to guard because these six doors are the exit for the mind. We're trying to keep the mind here and in the present moment. These six doors are the exit into imagination, into uh, what we call diversification, making more of things than they actually are, uh, fantasy and so on. So uh, we have to guard the senses. But what I w wanted to stress here is the uh, these are the three things that you need, and these things we can find in this meditation center. We can find a teacher here. We can practice, even though it might not be what we thought it was. It might not be the ideal place to practice. And we can guard the senses. Once we do these, we have these three things. We don't need... Uh, anything else really we should always try to uh, make do with what we have no? in meditation it's the same try not to let things upset us I think this is one problem that western people have with uh, Asian meditation centers is that they're often uh, very loosely run compared to western standards so there's a lot of strange things happening and noises and sometimes difficult accommodations and uh, difficult conditions for Western people. But I think sometimes we have to see these things as very trivial. You know, I mean, you think of the Buddha, the difficulty he had to put up with. He didn't have a room living under a tree or by the side of the road in a cave. You know, sometimes it was so cold the snow would, would fall and you just had to put up with it food, you don't know what food you're going to get in the morning. I've had people, it's funny, sometimes people complain about good food. But you think of the Buddha, he had such horrible food that he had to eat. He was a prince and when he first started going on alms round, he almost threw up when he, when he saw the food that he had to eat. When he tried to eat the food, it's like his, he said it's like his stomach was going to revolt and and come out, of, come out of his mouth. 
But then he said to himself, he said, I'm not here for the... I didn't ordain, I didn't leave the home life for food. I'm not doing this for my stomach. And so he forced himself to eat it. He said to himself, this is trivial, this isn't why I'm here. And so he was able to, as a result, uh, continue on his path. Otherwise it would have been impossible for him. So we know why we're here. We're here to practice. We're here to be with the teacher. And we're here to learn to uh, guard our hearts, guard our minds from uh, doing and saying, from falling into bad things. This is most important. It's not important our conditions and so on. So this is one thing I think it's important to say. It's also important for all of us who work here to accept criticism. Today I got some pretty harsh criticism. It was also pretty weird criticism, kind of funny. If anyone, any of the staff want to see the letter, I think it's uh, worth it for everybody to look at this letter. Um, but I can see something that uh, for these people it was very tough to try to assimilate to our center here, which you know, in some ways we just have to let it go because not everybody can, we can't help everybody, no? But on the other side, sometimes we have to accept that uh, sometimes it's difficult for Western people to come here. I think, I think in general, I think the Western people would agree with me here. So we probably have to uh, uh, have to be careful about this and accept that uh, um, we're going to have to work hard to accommodate Western people a little bit. Doesn't mean we have to give special special privileges or something. I do want Western people to have to have to put up with the same thing that the Thai people put up with to an extent. I just uh, it's important that we give them the right information and we make things clear to them. And if we've made things clear and they still don't understand, then it's their problem. But we have to make sure that we're really making things clear to them. Sometimes we need people like Polly or so on to to give them the right information. Uh, because sometimes we say the right thing but our accent is wrong or our grammar is wrong or so on and they don't understand. Like today I was I was told that I would be offering one of the one of my relatives said, Oh I heard that you're going to be offering ropes to the monks <laughs> I said, Robes, robes <laughs> He said, Oh that makes more sense. Yeah, this is just an example. He was confused why we would be offering ropes. <laughs> what do monks have rope? Why do monks have rope? Anyway. Okay, this is just a general discussion. Um, so today is my birthday. Today I'm 30. And everyone's wishing me happy birthday. So this is the first time in my life I've turned around and wished everybody else happy birthday. Because I think it's worth, I think that's, I never thought of it before, but I think it's the right thing to do. It's an, just because it's my birthday doesn't mean you can't be happy. <laughs> no? So happy birthday to everybody. Uh, birthdays are a funny thing, no? Yesterday I was 29, now I'm 30. Poof. And I was, they asked me, so how does it feel to be 30? I said, you know, a lot like being 29. <laughs> It's, it's hard to see the difference. I think uh, I think we all understand this. That it's it's uh, it's actually to put it clearly in my mind, it's an excuse, no, 
It's an excuse rather than anything. It's just an excuse for... In the old days it was an excuse to go and get drunk, and get stoned or something, you know. That's what we used to do. It's an excuse to get lots of presents. This is what it used to be. It's an excuse to have a party. It's an excuse to take a day off or go on vacation. It's an excuse for a lot of different things. So for Buddhists, as everyone who joined us today would have seen or should have seen, uh, for Buddhists it's an excuse to do good deeds. And I've said this before in, in the giving Thai talks, I said, you know, uh, everybody wants to do good deeds. We're all meditators, we all want to do good things, but we, we don't really have the excuse, you know. If we just go out and do good things, we will sometimes wonder. I'll tell you a story. When I was in Thailand, when I was newly ordained, I had been reading a lot of stuff about about Buddhism. And this this the teacher, the head teacher of our meditation technique, Mahasi Sayadaw, he's talk he talked about if we really want to be generous, if we want to fulfill the perfection of generosity or of charity, because it's not necessary if you want to just be a meditator, but <clears throat> if you really want to do it proper so that you say, generosity, I'm going to work on this, on being charitable. Then as a monk, when you go out on alms round, you take all your food and give it to the senior monks. And then you have to go out again on alms round to get food for yourself. If it's still not enough, you go and get more. So you're, you're always giving. When you get, you give, you give. Before you, you even take yourself. So I thought of this and I, I started doing something that's very, you know, Thai people don't, don't do this so often. I took all my alms food, and well, it was quite a lot. I mean, as you see here, we get often we get a lot, uh, and I especially I, I had a route where no other monk went because it was very far. And the people were had never seen a you know never seen a monk on alms round, or hardly ever saw a monk. So they invited me back every day, every day, and so much food by the time I got back to the monastery. And I took all of the best food. I didn't give all of it away, but I took all of the best food the fruit and the, the good uh, special foods. You know? And I put it on a platter, on a, one of these golden trays, and I brought it up to my teacher, because every morning I would sit with my teacher, and this is how I learned how to teach. You have to sit and listen every day, every day, every day. So every morning I would go up and offer this tray to him. And the first time he asked, you know, what's the occasion? And I said, there's no occasion. I said, this is my alms round. It's my alms food. And he looked at it and he was stunned and he said, this is your alms food? <laughs> he didn't realize that, that actually Jamtong, the place I was, was such good alms, alms food could be found. And so he gave me a blessing and then the next day I did it again and the next day I did it again and then again and again. And you know, he got used to it and there was no complaints. Until one day this woman came up and she was offering a, a gift as well. Um, we call Sangadana. It's a... It's a Sangadana means a gift to the monks, but it, it has a special meaning in Thai. It's this setup. You know, they have this gift. It's like a bucket with all sorts of things that monks use. And she gave it. She wanted to give it to my teacher. And he said, well, what's the occasion? He said, is it your birthday today? And she said, no. And I, I jumped in, and I was going to give mine together, because if I don't give it together, then he has to give a blessing twice. So when she gave, I gave it. And, she, and then he turns to me, and he says, oh, Noah's born every day. <laughs> And we all laughed. I don't know, maybe it's a Buddhist joke, but I thought it was very funny. And 
But I, you know, I think it's, on one hand, it's a very clever thing to say because we are all born every day. How can you say you're the same person as yesterday? Yesterday you were a totally different person. All of the things you did yesterday, they're gone. You're never going to do them again. You try, you do the same thing, it's totally different. We are born every day. In fact, we're born every moment. There's a song about it, I think. Being born every moment. This is the truth, is that every moment there's birth. Every moment we give rise to a, a special mind state. And it can be either a good mind or it can be a, a, an unwholesome mind. And so as meditators we work hard to, to well in a sense to be reborn so that uh, all of our bad things they die. Yeah? And all of sorts of good things they're born. But we also try to look at this process of birth and death at every moment. And try to learn to let go of our attachments to who we are, this idea of I, and this idea of me, and this idea of mine. Our attachments to so many different things. We hold on. We need this, we need that. Our inability to let go, because this is something which is very dangerous. We're on a journey here, and we're coming to a, a conclusion. And the conclusion is death. I, gave a, I, I wrote on my blog today, I said... So the one year closer to death day came again. <laughs> and uh, so we freed a bunch of fish, fish to make sure it doesn't happen next year. Because that's really what, you know, I, there's this talk, this teacher, he, he, one of Ajahn Tong's teachers, he gave this talk, he said, you know, we say, we always say, uh, you know, now I'm one day older, or one year older. I've got one more year, you know. You can count up. But actually it's more like a countdown because it's one year less, right? That's one year I'm never going to have again. I'm, I'm, I'm one year down, another year down. My, the rest of the time I have to live is, is shortened by one year. You can't, you can't count up. I mean, we're, not, we're not gaining time, no? We're losing it every moment. This is why the Lord Buddha said, and this is a saying which is, it's funny how the Lord Buddha's words can be passed, and in, passed on for so long. But the Lord Buddha said, don't let the moment pass you by. It means literally, don't let the moment pass you by. It's funny how we're still using this phrase, even today. And it, the reason he said this is be, be, for this very reason, is that we have very little time left. We don't know how long we have left, but it's very little time. For 30 years, I, I've been on this earth for 30 years, it's like nothing, gone. We think of how long we've been on this earth, how long do we have left? We know what's at the end, we've seen other people at the end. And we know how they reacted, not very well in general. We have to ask ourselves, are we going to have to suffer that? And if we suffer that, then when we die, is our minds, are our minds going to be clear? And if our minds are not clear, are we going to go to a good place? Because we're born every moment, and the moment of death is, is no exception. I've given talks about this, this idea of rebirth. And people say that Buddhists believe in rebirth, and it isn't true. We just don't believe in death. Death is a belief that we believe that some... We, we look at things externally, and we see other people dying, and we say, Oh, that means there's such a thing as death. 
And actually death is just a transition because the, the world, the universe, is based on the mind. If you don't believe me, you can just close your eyes and look and ask yourself, what is real? You can look at the world in one way and you can say the things that you see are real. Now I'm seeing a book, now I'm seeing a chair, now I'm seeing a person. But what you're actually seeing is light at touching the eye. It's not anywhere, it's not out there. What you're actually seeing is light touching the eye. And in fact, it's only occurring in the brain. It's occurring at the moment, uh, at, the, at the, the place where the brain processes uh, seeing. And there's the mind there. When you close your eyes, you, you have to admit that actually what's real, and putting aside all of this belief about science, what's real is your mind. You're really seeing and really hearing and really smelling and really tasting and really feeling and really thinking. These are the six things which are real in this universe. Apart from that, it's all thinking. It's all just our imagination. We come up with theories. Well, I believe this, I believe that. We come up with all sorts of logic. You know, well, this means this and that means that. Because of this, then this. But really, you can't avoid the reality that everything is, is very experiential. Reality is experiential. And this mind, it, it just keeps going and going and going. When the body dies, that's only a ripple in the external uh, phenomena, phenomena which we experience. It's only a ripple in our senses. When we die, we still hear, see, see hear, smell, taste, feel, think. It continues on because death is only a physical thing. It's like the same as when your cells die. Your cells die, you don't die. Your cells are changing all the time. So is the body. This is a physical process. This is how uh, the physical world works. It changes. It goes through cycles. Death is just another cycle. So we can't say when we die, that's it. What proof do you have? You know, look at things experientially. Why does the mind suddenly cease? Just because the body... Well, the body is always changing. Why? Why does, where's the reasoning? The reasoning is because we, we aren't able to look inside. We don't close our eyes enough. We don't look at ourselves in our own minds. We don't see that our minds are upset. Our minds are confused. We don't see that there's anger and greed and judging and views and conceit and all sorts of un, unpleasant things in our own minds. I'm not putting them there. The Buddha didn't put them there. How can you blame... Uh, Blame anybody else. These things exist within inside ourselves. Within ourselves. When, when we practice meditation, we're learning, we're learning to see these things. Uh, to see our own minds. And the problem is we, we look at things externally. We look at things from a physical point of view. We forget to look inside. We're not able to look inside. We don't take the time to see that uh, our way of looking at the world is... It's very theoretical. It's not very experiential. It's not very empirical. I gave a talk in Thailand once and I noted to the people, I said, so as modern, uh, I said, uh, what was I talking? I said, I guess I just went, came out and said, I said, science is not very, I said that modern science is not very scientific. And I said to them, I said, I, as far as I understand, and I'm not a scientist, as far as I understand, science can't prove anything. I asked them, has science ever proved anything? And these are Thai people, right? They said, yeah, yeah. I said, 
Well, no, as far I said, you know, I may be wrong, but as far as I understand, science can't prove anything. They can only prove that things are false, right? So if you say this, they could come up with something that doesn't fit that theory, and suddenly your theory is, has to be false. That's all they can do. But once it's a theory, they're just postulating something. And they're just waiting to see if anybody can prove it wrong. But they can't say to you, this is truth, ultimate truth, because they're just going by experiments. And those experiments, you can't, be, you can't say that that won't change. So science is unable to prove anything by its very nature. And the belief of scientists, as far as I understand, and I could be wrong, is that this is the nature of reality. The nature of, of science has to be this way. That there's nothing, you can't scientifically prove anything. And I disagree. But, of course, meditative proof is, is much diff different. You're not proving it to anybody else. You're proving it to yourself. And you can prove certain things to yourself. First of all, you can prove to yourself that there is seeing. Nobody can tell you that there's not seeing. Right? You know, in Hinduism, there's a lot of talk about maya. And I think, I, th I think it, it's... Um, well, I don't want to compare or, or, or maybe put, up, put this one up and this one down. Let's just say that Buddhism looks at things differently. Because even maya, if you're just seeing and you say it's not really seeing, it's maya. Maya means illusion. Well, yeah, but there is seeing. I mean, you can't deny the fact that there is the seeing, no matter what it is. If you want to say it's maya, that's still only some kind of a view or a label you're putting on it. There is seeing. This is real, and you can prove that to yourself. I think it's possible for people to still be doubting, to say, uh, I'm not sure. But this doubting is real. You can prove to yourself that doubting is real. You're really doubting, right? And just because you're doubting doesn't mean it's false. There is seeing, there is hearing, there is smelling, there is tasting, there is feeling, there is thinking. There's a lot of real things. When you're in pain, there's really pain. There's really something, and we call it pain. There's something going on. In every experience, there's something real. But only in experiences. If it's not an experiential, if it's not from experience, you can't prove that it's real. You can only postulate, you can only theorize. It's impossible. It, it, it's by its very nature impossible to prove that it's real. But experience is by its very nature, and by the very sphere of being experiential, it is it is. Uh, very easy to prove to yourself. And it's very easy to prove to yourself some things that we absolutely aren't aware of. We absolutely don't know. We just simply don't know. And this is shocking to people that they don't know such simple things. I'll give you an example. Without looking at your hands and without counting, how many knuckles do you have on one hand? Can anybody answer? Hold up your hands. Uh, well, you haven't, you've never looked at your hands before? No looking, no counting. <laughs> Nobody's ever, you know, it's your hand. You don't know your, don't we say, I know it, I know it like I know the ba back of my own hand? <laughs> and yet nobody can answer. How, how many knuckles do we have? Fourteen. You counted, no? no. Huh? You heard me say it last year. <laughs> Yeah. Well, she's a doctor, so she doesn't count. <laughs> she, 
14, I believe. You couldn't prove me wrong. I'm not so interested, but it's these kind of things that we learn in meditation. We don't learn how many knuckles we have. Well, you do if you're one of my students, but you don't have to know how many knuckles you have. It doesn't make you a better person. But uh, makes you a smarter person. Okay, smart and good are different. But we, we learn many very simple things uh, similar to this in the meditation practice, things that we just didn't see. That's just like amazing that we were so, uh, so obtuse that we didn't see these things. We're amazed in practice and we're shocked. And it's all just by closing eyes. We've never done this before. Closing our eyes, we see, we see things about ourselves. We see our minds wandering. We're trying to keep our minds focused and our minds won't focus. We're seeing our minds getting bored. We want to, maybe we want to listen to the talk, but suddenly our minds wander off. You know, we want to be nice to someone, but suddenly we find ourselves getting irritated or angry. We want to be able to do without certain things, but we, we really want them. You know? And so we're living our lives uh, developing all of these unwholesome qualities. And if they're not bringing us suffering now, well, we can think about any time that we were sick, when we had an illness or so on. We can ask ourselves, you know, were we able to really deal with that sickness? And generally we can answer the questions that no, we weren't. It was terrible suffering for us. But we, we, we're very quick to forget this because these sicknesses are not fatal and they're not uh, enduring. So we general, generally go and find a doctor and you know, have them get rid of it as quickly as they, as they can. Like uh, I heard my stepmother when she gave birth to her daughter, she vowed that she would have a natural childbirth with no, no medication. And, and she told us afterwards, she said it was hilarious, when she finally got there, she was just yelling at the door, give me something! Anything, knock me out. <laughs> and, give me it all. And, uh, you know, this is a, in these simple examples, we're not able to deal. And normally we think, well, this is natural. This is the ordinary state of a human being. And I guess you could say that. It's not very natural, I don't think. It's kind of an unnatural sort of thing that we should be so upset about a very natural process, such as pain. But we've come to accept this kind of thing as natural. It's natural to not like being in pain. I, I disagree. Pain is a very natural thing, and I don't think there's any reason for us to dislike it. We have all these excuses like, uh, oh, it's my body telling me something. And I think you're wrong. I think anybody who says that is wrong. Our body isn't, isn't smart enough to tell us anything. It's just telling us that it's in pain. And in fact, uh, very often I've... Uh, well, everyone who goes through meditation will be able to realize this. People who believe this, that the body is telling you something and you shouldn't push the pain because it's going... I mean, the, the implication is that it's going to cause sickness in the body. But everyone who goes through meditation practice sees the exact opposite. Just like anybody who goes through a good Thai massage. <laughs> I've never had a Thai massage, so I always use this for, with my students. I say meditation is like a, a nice Thai massage, except it has, goes one better because the Thai massage, it only affects the body and so you have to go back and get another one. This is why Thai masseuses can make money because you have to go back again and again. It's not permanent, it only affects the body. 
But meditation is something that go, you go through so much pain in meditation for, for some people. If they're full of stress, uh, full of uh, uh, tension, full of anxiety, full of uh, greed, for instance, full of anger, then they're going to have to put up with a lot of pain. But as they go through it, they see that actually this pain, which they thought was chronic and, and uncurable, it disappears and never comes back, simply by watching it and accepting it. And giving up this idea that, oh, the pain is trying to tell me something, I should move now. We simply focus on the pain. We do the exact opposite. We accept the pain for what it is. This is something I, 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 it's vividly in my mind because I watched my grandmother when she was, when she was uh, critically ill, when she was dying, and she was completely unable to deal with the pain. At the time, I was, I'm so, so sad that I was not able to, uh, I wasn't clear in my mind enough to be able to explain to her how to be mindful. But it always reminds me that for myself, I have to be always on the guard and I, I have to go another way than this. I can't let myself get to that point where I'm going to be crying on, on my, my deathbed because she was in so much pain. And so we learn to accept the pain. There's nothing wrong with it. And this is what is so hard for people to understand, so hard for us to accept because we've been training ourselves completely the opposite way. When there's pain, you have to move. You have to change. You have to go find a doctor and get a pill. When actually it's, it's just our body saying pain. So if we reply by bad, we say, oh, that's bad, then it becomes suffering for us. If we reply by saying that's pain, you know, understanding that that's pain, then there's no suffering for us, there's only pain. So we teach ourselves this. When we sit in meditation, we say to ourselves, pain, 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 just watching it until it goes away. And, uh, I mean, you don't have to believe me, you can try it for yourself, see how it goes. Uh, it takes a lot of work and a lot of uh, uh, patience, a lot of endurance to really get this kind of a technique. But once you get it, it, it changes your whole life. It opens up your heart. It opens up your mind. It frees you from all sorts of attachments and addictions and needs and wants. And it makes you, it helps you to realize the truth of life. It helps you to realize the truth of reality. That reality is simple existence. It doesn't have to be good or bad. There, has, there doesn't have to be any judgments. It helps you to deal with things like old age, sickness, and death. And this is, I think, something very important. I want to get back now to what, I, what the point here was, is that this is something very important to think of on one's birthday, on one's one year closer to death day. Because it doesn't have to be morbid or, or pessimistic that we're, we're always concerned about death. It's just that we're so lazy and, uh, you know, like drunk. We're, we're, I mean, look, look at how we live our lives in this world. Consumerism, you know, uh, uh, pleasure, and beautiful things, our attachment to beautiful things and how it makes us get more and more and more and more and more. Why can't we just be happy with what we've got? Why can't we be happy without these things? I mean, the answer, of course, is, well, 
why can't we be happy with them? <laughs> I mean, what's wrong with going out and getting these things again? I mean, we see that we can get them. And so without this constant reminder to ourselves, you know, look, you, you're not going to be this way forever. You're not going to be able to keep these things forever. Your own body is going to start breaking down and all of these sicknesses which you've been able to avoid and, you know, find medicine for, eventually they're going to catch up with you. It's, it's nature. If you're not prepared for it, you're going to be just like my grandmother. And so this is how I look at, at, uh, at birthdays in two ways. One, I look at it as an excuse to do good deeds. And the other, I look at it as a, a, a chance for us to reflect upon uh, aging and to uh, remind ourselves that we really have something we have to do. We have to pure, clear our minds. We have training that we have to do. We're like, uh, it's like we've enrolled in a sports program, but we're still not very good at hitting the ball. We're still not very good at playing the sport. Being born as a human is like that. It's like we've enrolled in something and we, we, never, we never trained ourselves how to do it. We just live our lives along and on and on and on. And we tend to repeat this from lifetime to lifetime. So we always have to suffer. And we can never remember these sufferings. We lose our brain. We lose all of our memories. It's very hard to remember something that happened before you were born. And so as a result, we, we aren't ready for, for all of the suffering and difficulty that comes in life. And we, we, we learn and we teach ourselves instead how to forget the suffering. There's nobody here who could pretend that they've never gone through terrible suffering in their lives. But yet we, we, we try to do just that. We try to pretend that life is wonderful and that we're perfectly free and that uh, we're already on a, at a state of sort of, you could say, enlightenment or understanding or freedom. And yet we're lying to ourselves because anytime problems come up, we still get upset. We still get uh, worked up. Uh, we still suffer terribly. And, and even worse than that, we cause suffering for other people. We hurt other people. We pretend that we're a good person because we see we're able to get along with people. But we still do and say bad things. Uh, we still hurt other people. Sometimes in very little ways. Sometimes we're not even aware of it. When we come to practice meditation, this is something that everyone will agree with when they practice meditation. You're able to see these things much clearer. You're able to see all of the good and the bad things that you've done. You're able to see how you're helping people or how you're hurting people. And we're able to see ourselves much better. So the other thing I wanted to talk about, I think I've been, been talking for quite a while now, but I wanted to give everyone a, I wished everyone already a happy birthday. Now I want to talk about how you have a happy birthday, or how you be happy. And so I'm going to go into my talk about uh, how to find swastika. What are the swastika, what's the swastika in Buddha, Buddhism? And it's an interesting talk. We know what a swastika is, no? <laughs> bad, 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 no? Swastika is a terrible thing, right? 
It's funny, if anybody knows what swastika means, I think they might change their mind. If you know anything about Nazi Germany and the background of, of Adolf Hitler, then you probably already know what I, some of what I'm going to say is that the swastika is something that Adolf Hitler took from, from India. Swastika is a, is a Sanskrit word. It means bringer of well-being. So he was using it as like a good luck symbol. And in fact, he wrote it backwards. As far as I've seen it in, in India and in, in Buddhist circles, it's written, it's, it's flipped. It's the other way. So in fact, he, this is why he brought it and brought so much uh, not, uh, you know, unwell-being, right? That's why he created so much suffering because he totally flipped it. If, maybe if he had it the right way, he would have gone in another direction. No? Instead of bringing all sorts of well-being, he brought the exact opposite. And for Thai people, they don't realize, I think, uh, even if they've heard about Hitler, I, I don't think, maybe they do, but I don't think many people realize that swastika, that we use it every day. When we say swati, swati is a Hindu, is a Sanskrit word. Swati, swati. Swati. Swa, swati. Swa is, I'm more familiar with the Pali. The Pali is su. Swa and su are the same word. And ati is being. Swa and su mean well or good. Ati is means uh, to be or, or is. Uh, I mean, they use it. it. It actually is a third person declension. It means he, she, is. But here they're using ati as a noun. They're saying it means uh, uh, e, uh, being or is. Uh, or No, being in this one. And so suati or swati, swati means uh, well-being. And in Pali we say soti, soti because the su and the a become so, and then ti soti. And we get these blessings from the monks soti te hontu sap soti te soti te hontu sapata. May you always have well-being. May there always be well-being for you. And the Lord Buddha gave a, a talk on how to find well-being, how to how to find uh, happiness, how to be at peace with yourself. And he said to he said he gave this talk. There was a. I don't know, maybe it's hard for Western people to get around this, but I think a lot of people here are spiritual, so I think it's easier that way. An angel came to see the Buddha. What happened was this angel, he was up in heaven, and he was like a, um, how do you say, a, a lord of the angels. He had his own community of angels, and there were a thousand angels under him. And the life of angels is like this. They go out and pick flowers all day. They have these flowering trees. <laughs> This is what angels do. You know, they don't go to work. They don't have a nine to five. Uh, they don't even have to use the toilet. Angels are like, like, like whoa! Uh, the Buddha said it's very difficult to find something. If there were one thing, if you could uh, say there is one thing, if there were one thing that you could say, this is completely blissful, complete happiness. He said, uh, complete. Uh, complete pleasure or happiness. He said heaven is that one thing. 
They're completely desirable. He said, heaven is that one thing. Something like that. I may be, I may be mistranslating it, but the, the meaning is there. Of course, in, Buddha, in Buddhism, we don't pay too much attention to heaven, and I'll explain why. But so what they did is 500 of them would, would stay at the, at the bottom of this tree, the trees and 500 of them would go up in the trees and throw down the flowers and they would sing and they would dance and they had this flower ceremony. And so he's out there with his, his angels doing their daily whatever it is, dancing, singing, like nymphs I guess is the idea. And suddenly, you know, the sound of the, of the nymphs up in the trees disappears. And he's like, well, what happened to the nymphs up there? And he realized that 500 of the nymphs had disappeared. 500 of the angels had disappeared. And he said to himself, you know, what happened? He asked everybody, nobody knew, suddenly they were gone. And so he looked around and he, he used his, um, you know, the angels also have this ability to see far and to sort of find things. It's like the search function in in in. in on your computer and so he did a search and and he found out that 500 of the angels had fallen to hell they had died that same morning and all gone to hell been born in a torturous state of, of existence Lord Buddha said uh, if there were one thing that people could say it's completely undesirable completely unpleasurable complete suffering he said hell is that place and so this is why Buddhists don't pay too much attention to heaven because as in our understanding of it, it's not permanent. It's not stable. And so he was shocked, this angel. He goes, what? What did they do? And he realized that it was their attachment. It was their, uh, their lack of doing anything good. So when they died, all of their bad deeds, all of the bad things that they had done just caught up with them. You know, maybe before they had killed... Maybe before they had, you know, not respecting life, not respecting harmony and peace, killing, uh, torturing, and hurting other living beings, and bringing fear into their hearts, not bringing peace and happiness, not bringing about states of harmony, bringing about states of suffering. Today I was so happy. I've never freed fish before. And just see, feeling the little little fish in my hand and putting it in the water, and it was so calm. They're they're freaked out, right? And it, you you send love to them, and you wish for them to be peaceful and happy, and they calm down. And your movements are slow, and you pick the fish up in your hand, and you have love for the fish, and you put it in the water, and it just sits there. If you reach in, and you're in a hurry. I got to get a fish. Oh, they freak out, right? But when you have this this sense of harmony and peace and wishing good for them. This affects your mind greatly. It has a great effect on your mind and brings such peace and happiness. And the opposite comes when you hurt and torture. It has a profound effect on your mind, one that we can't see right away. We can't see unless we have to sit still. When we have to put up with difficult things, then we can see. We're full of irritation and impatience and so on. We see that we're actually unable to put up with unpleasant things. We don't have, our minds are, are, are not stable, as stable as we think they are. 
they're stable when we get everything what we, that we want but when we don't get the things that we want they become unstable right away you know, people who steal and uh, commit adultery these are things which create great suffering and sadness and sorrow people who steal people who take drugs and alcohol uh, drugs and alcohol, I, I think it's, it's in a different category. The problem with drugs and alcohol is not that it hurts other people. I think this is clear. The problem is it, it, it is the doorway to, to, to lose your sense of restraint in terms of all of these other things. And there's a story that goes, uh, this man, he was very virtuous. Uh, he kept all the first four precepts very, 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 uh, Perfectly, he never killed, he never stole, he never committed adultery, he never lied. But he never really uh, felt that that interested in the fifth precept, because he said to himself, "Well, you know, it's not hurting anybody else." But the other four, he was quite religious about. So, until one day, he's sitting there and he decides to himself that he's going to have some something to drink, and so he starts uh, hitting the bottle and. Uh, and he gets halfway through it, and he starts to get hungry. You know, drinking all this alcohol, he wants something, something tasty to eat. And so a chicken suddenly a chicken walks uh, through the front yard. One of his neighbor's chickens. And you know he's half drunk, so he doesn't think about it. And he goes and he picks up the chicken and kills it, and cooks it up, and eats it. And just as he's finishing up, the neighbor's wife walks in and says, Hey, have you seen our chicken? And he says, No. <laughs> he's all afraid. And he says, No. And then she says, Oh, and she's looking kind of depressed and sad. And he starts looking at her and he sees that she's quite attractive. And so right then and there, he, 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 does, he, you know, he starts hitting on her and coming on to her. And finally, he seduces her and he's able to... Uh, get her to go with him and, and and break the third precept. And so uh, the story goes that as a result of of breaking the fifth precept, he was able. You know, in one day he broke all five of the, all of the other four, very very quickly. But I think in I mean I think this is it's just a sort of a silly story. It's more clear that clearly drugs and alcohol they have an effect on your mind. Anyone who's meditated can can understand this. Because meditation clears the mind, like clear water. If the water is already muddy and dirty, you can't tell when you put more dirt in it. You can't tell what happens when it gets more dirty, because it's already dirty. But when the water is clear, any little dirt is very clear and has a very clear effect on the mind. So if you're not meditating, it's, it's very difficult to see even the effects of small amounts of, of, of these sorts of substances. But anyway, these are the kinds of things which then, you know, when these things catch up with us, then, then we suffer. Even when they haven't get caught up with us, if we're not meditating, if we're not watching our mind, we can't see what effect they've had, because our minds are all uh, flustered, all busy, you know, flying here and there all the time. So when we meditate, everyone can clearly agree that we have to go over many of the bad things we've done. We're able to see them, and we're able to see that actually... We did no one any favors by doing those things. We didn't help the world in any way. We brought about suffering and sadness. 
And we learn how to, this is very important way how we learn how to become a better person. We don't have, and this is another thing you can prove to yourself. You can prove to yourself that karma exists. You don't have to say, uh, you know, if I give, if I give, uh, you know, put, uh, give money to some monks and then I go out and buy a lottery ticket and then I don't get, hit the lottery, it means karma doesn't exist. This is often what, what uh, traditional Buddhists think. But we can see when we practice meditation that karma works in a very uh, simple way that when you've done something bad, it, has, it puts a scar on your mind. It's a scar on your heart. It changes who you are. I, I used to hunt. And the first time I killed a deer, it was very difficult. But the second time and the third time and so on, when I tried, it was very easy. Very difficult the first time. I never realized how difficult it would be to kill something. I was shaking when I tried to pull the trigger, but I pushed myself through it and I was able to do it. And as a result, I caused great suffering. The mother deer was lost its, had lost its child, and the baby deer was in such pain and suffering. The second time, the third time, it was much easier. I didn't have any care anymore. Until I finally started meditating and realized the, the, the suffering I had created. Could you imagine if someone hit you in the, in the leg with an arrow, in the thigh with an arrow? You know, and you're bleeding to death and you can't run. How much fear you'd feel. <laughs> Terrible, no? And yet we, we, we can become so callous and just see these things as stupid animals. Not when you're holding the fish in your hand, you see, some, see so differently. And we hold our cats and our dogs and we see them so differently. See how, how, how biased and how unrational we are. Anyway, so back to the story. These, uh, these angels, they, they passed away. They went to hell. So the angels that were left were like freaking out. And they're like, whoa, are we next or what? And so this angel, he goes to see the Buddha. And the Buddha tells him, uh, there's, he, he asks the Buddha, he says, where can I find happiness? How can I find total well-being? Like, how can I come to this state of stability where, where I thought I was? I thought this was permanent. And most of us are like this. We know we're going to have to die, but we, we forget about it as much as we can. I say live for the day and so on. And, and, uh, it's kind of naive, really, because we're not really living in the day. We're living always in the future anyway. What, what can we get? How can we get it? Running away from the past and all of the things, all of the suffering. Uh, but he, you know, how can I? He said, "How can I find real stability, real well-being, where I thought I was in well-being before?" And the Buddha said, "He said, you know, I don't see well-being for anybody, for any being in this world apart from." Uh, and he gave four things which he said were well-being. The first one is wisdom. The second one is effort. The third one is restraint. And the fourth one is sacrifice. He said, these four things, apart from this, I see no happiness. Uh, I don't see no, ha no well-being for beings apart from these things. Because wisdom, without wisdom, this is what causes us to do all sorts of unwholesome deeds. This is what causes us to do all sorts of, to give rise to all sorts of unpleasantness. I mean, ask yourself, if anger is such a bad thing, why do we still get angry? 
if we know that addiction is such a bad thing, why are we still addicted? And we have all these reasons for it, like it's it's a part of who I am, and so on. And you know, this is all theories. The truth is, it's 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 ignorance. It's not realizing clearly that these are bad things. We don't know that greed is a bad thing. We don't know that anger is a bad thing. If we did, we wouldn't give rise to it. Rise to it. And in fact, when we realize that these are bad things, when we learn for ourselves that these are completely useless states of mind, then we don't give rise to them. So that wisdom is the most important thing, and in Buddhism it's the chief quality. The Lord Buddha said, just as the moon outshines all of the stars in the night sky, so too does wisdom outshine all virtues that exist. Because once you have wisdom, you can't do anything wrong. Once you understand what is wrong and what is right, you can't do anything wrong. You can never hurt at yourself or anyone else. You can never fall into suffering. But the rest of them, how do we get to wisdom? Well, the second one is effort. We have to work. It's so sad that there's so much work going on in this world and for such useless things. We work for things which are so roundabout and so often even useless. You know, we're always working for somebody else, uh, often not even caring about the results of, of the job, the thing that we, the work that we do. Or if we care and we feel good about it, we can see that well, it's bringing something good, but it's it's certainly not making people better. It's not making people better people. It's not making us a better person. We're working so hard at this. And in the end, are we a better person? In the end, are the people around us better people? We can be a doctor or a nurse or a lawyer or a teacher. But if we're if we're not practicing and working hard to develop ourselves as compassionate, loving, caring, uh, clear-minded people, then we're always going to be giving our own, our own delusions to other people. We'll always be you know, trying to convince people of our way is right and so on. Instead of helping people to see for themselves what is right, what is real. Because when we look inside, we see clearly what is real. We don't have to argue about it or convince people. It's true that I do a little bit of convincing up here, but I'm, I'm sort of trying to, you know, all of you want to learn, so I give you some pointers. Well, look, if you don't agree with me, that's fine. Maybe I'm wrong, but take a look. And I try to describe it a little bit and so on. But in the end, this is the work that we have to do, is to see clearly. If, you, if reality is different from what I say it is, then I'm the one who's wrong. I, I accept it 100%. In fact, probably a lot of what I say is incomplete or imprecise, maybe even outright wrong. But reality is never wrong. Once it's real, it's real. There's no two realities. So the, the effort, the work that we have to do is to understand and to learn about reality, to come to see the truth. Because so much of what we believe is wrong. It's delusion. It's based on ignorance. It's based on uh, simply being taught this for so long. This is the se the second one. Is we need we need effort in the right way. We need to have effort to get rid of all of the bad things that we that we don't need and don't want and are just going to cause us terrible suffering in the future, and build up all sorts of good things, things which will bring us happiness and goodness, and the ability to deal with difficulty in the future, the ability to find complete, uh, to find well-being and and happiness. 
Number three is restraint. So while we're practicing, especially for meditators, when we're practicing, it's very important that we have restraint of the senses because, as I said, this is where imagination arises. When we see something, suddenly, oh, what a terrible thing, or oh, what a beautiful thing, and so on. We become attracted or, or repulsed by it. When we hear, when we smell, when we taste, when we feel or when we think, we're so quick to uh, make more of it than it actually is. And this is very important because when we're trying to learn about reality, we have to stay with reality. We have to keep our minds here and in, in reality. We can't let our minds wander into uh, delusion, illusion, fantasy, or uh, you know all sorts of rational thinking. You know, think planning in the future, thinking about the past, and so on. We have to be here and now to learn about what is real, because all that's real is the present moment. No? So restraint of the senses is very important. When we see something, it has to be just seeing. When we hear something, it has to be just hearing. Because these are the real things. In fact, even the words that I'm saying right now, uh, the, the meaning of them is only, is only born in your mind. All that I'm doing is uh, warbling my, how do you say, I'm causing my, uh, my vocal cords to vibrate. What that does is it gives rise to a specific sound. When I move my lips and my tongue, it affects that sound, and that sound changes. It has a certain quality. And if you watch this, you can see it. You can see that it's, it's actually quite funny to, watch, to listen to my voice. There's all sorts of things happening. And this is part of learning what's real. So when someone yells at you, all you have to do is take apart their, their speech. And just watch it for what it is, see it for what it is. The easiest way to do this without letting yourself fall into, fall off the wagon and go back to getting angry is to just say to yourself, hearing, 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 reminding you that yourself that it's just hearing so that you don't get upset or happy about it. When you smell, it's just smelling. When you taste, it's just tasting. When you feel, it's just feeling. Tasting, I always go on about tasting because it's, so much of the diseases in in our in our our society come from food. You know? The Buddha was very clear that food is. He said there are four causes of sickness. One of them is food. And so I always say, you know, what's the worst enemy of the stomach? What's our stomach's worst enemy? It's the tongue. The tongue is the stomach's worst enemy because the stomach says I'm full, and the tongue says no, no, more, more. Or the stomach wants to eat, the stomach's not full yet, and the tongue says, no way, I'm not touching that. Right? They don't work together so often. So when, if we're not able to say to ourselves, tasting, tasting, it can be very difficult to moderate our food, which is a very important thing in Buddhism and in life. Moderation in food is incredibly important. It's not what you eat, it's um, basically how much you eat. When, when you know what is enough and why you eat. I mean, if, if, if we were to watch the tongue, we wouldn't have to uh, get all sorts of sweet stuff or all sorts of sour stuff. We'd get a very natural food. You know? We'd be able to eat very simple food. But why does junk food arise? Because we're so attached to taste. It's not because junk food has any particular quality or because it's easier. It's not easy in any way to make a potato chip, for instance, or, or a, a candy or an ice cream cone. These are very difficult things to make and we wouldn't be eating these. 
if we, if we weren't so attached to tastes, right? I mean, think about it. Why do we have ice cream? It's not because ice cream, wow, that's easy. Let's make ice cream. <laughs> Even just making milk is such a difficult thing, right? And Socrates uh, claimed that this was uh, a cause of war, in fact. He said, he said, yeah, if we were going to make a perfect society, then we would eat acorns and uh, uh, what is it, berries and very simple foods. And this other man, he, he got outraged. He says, oh, you want us to live like barbarians? And he said, well, how would you have us eat? And the guy said, well, what about meat and spice and wine and so on? And he said, oh, okay. Well, if that's the kind of society you want, then we're going to have to expand our borders. Because how are we going to get all this stuff? You've got to have cows, you've got to have you know, fields for the spices, you've got to have all sorts of difficult things come up. And he said, but then what happens is that the other people in other cities, they need more, because they, they think like us, they want more land. And suddenly our fields are not enough and we have to take their fields. And so here without, he says, without... Without looking for it, we found also the cause of war. And suddenly we need an army. And he goes on about that. Anyway, so restraint is very important. If you want to find well-being, if we want to get rid of war, right? Uh, one of the best things we could do is, is cultivate this restraint. Cultivate this ability to, uh, to see things simply for what they are and not need more than we already have. Right? Like the economy, the economy really confuses me. I think it confuses a lot of people. I just don't understand. I, I'm probably more out of it than most of you, but I don't understand. I don't get it. You know, How do you fix the economy? Why is the economy broken? And so on. And it makes me sort of think about you know, how far we've gotten from reality. I mean, our economy is based on iPhones, right? It's no longer based on rice. Or, or, or maybe it still is. I don't know. But I just think if we got back to more basics and you know, look at how we're living. We're living in a desert here, right? And we're living as if it was a tropical, a tropical rainforest. Uh, I don't know how to fix that, but you know, if 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 enough was enough and we could just live with things the way they the way they are, well, we we could surely find a way to live in a desert. We could find a way to live and cultivate food and so on and live uh, live for for survival I mean ask yourself could you not live this way where you had gardens and lived off the land if if enough was enough we really could and there's more than enough and there's far more than enough resources in this world for us to feed everybody but because of our lack of restraint that we need special foods and so on special things, special sights. You know, the iPhone is beautiful. You need an iPhone. Well, you're just using it for making calls and so on. Why can't you make, make do with an old phone? No. <laughs> no, maybe people, I just hear about the iPhone all the time. That's why I use it. But so many things, cars, no. What's wrong with an old beat up car? I, I can't stand it. I need a new car, a beautiful car. That car is beautiful. So on. So restraint is very important. The fourth and final thing to talk about tonight is, is sacrifice. Sacrifice. So we all have to go out and, and we have to choose. You're going to sacrifice cows or goats or pigs or, or chickens or so on. 
No, this isn't the kind of sacrifice you need. We're not performing animal sacrifice. We're performing, performing, performing human sacrifice here. Buddhists don't perform animal sacrifice. We perform human sacrifice. Anybody ever seen that movie, uh, what was it, Fight Club? There was a part in Fight Club where he takes a gun to a guy's head and he calls it a human sacrifice. He convinces the guy to go out and get a real education and a real job. It's this guy working in a convenience store. I, I, I'm sorry, I don't, don't misunderstand. I don't, I don't watch these movies as a monk, but I haven't been a monk my whole life. And so I, I caught Fight Club before I, before I got into Buddhism. I'm not sitting around at night after I give these talks watching <laughs> old, old macho movies. It was actually kind of a silly movie. That was interesting. But most interesting was this part where he pulls the guy out of a convenience store by gu at gunpoint and starts yelling at him. He's like, what are you doing, wasting your life? And the gun's empty. There's no bullets in it. But the guy's freaking out. He says, he's, give me your driver's license. He takes his driver's license and says, I'm going to be watching you. You can get a real life or so on. And so it's called human sacrifice. And so they get this list of human sacrifices where they get these guys to go out and, and improve themselves. Um, I, I don't, that's not quite what I have in mind here. But, um, you know, sacrifice, sacrifice in a sense, sacrificing, I mean, on, on a very simple level, giving up. Giving up our, our, uh, our luxury, our sense of, our need for pleasure, our need for... for uh, our need for abundance, our need for things, our need for complications. Maybe this is the easiest thing to talk about. Sometimes I go too far and start talking about, yeah, everyone has to shave their head and put on robes and so on. But, you know, uh, simplicity. And we look at Thoreau. Thoreau was very big on this. He said, you know, you can live in very simple ways. If we just simplify our lives and do certain things to <coughs> make our lives simpler, more harmonious, if we can give up these things which we say, I like this. But when we see it's hurting other living beings, why are we still, why, why, why can't we give up at least that? Why can't we give up these things which are, uh, are clearly wrong? And then giving up further, giving up those things which uh, cause attachment for us, which uh, confuse and disturb our minds, which waste our time. Like spending all of our time watching American Idol apparently is a big thing. Uh, I, I guess it's interesting, you know, watching young kids you know, go through, uh, uh, I don't know, become stars or whatever. <laughs> Doesn't sound that interesting to me, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, sometimes we have to, we have to think about this, you know. Isn't there, isn't, you know, isn't there just a little bit of time I could spend making myself a better person? You know, thinking of these kids living in the desert who are, are dying of uh, starvation, of malnutrition. You know, couldn't I take an hour out of my day to, to do something? You know, something good? Or we think about... Uh, you know, just think about ourselves. I'm not so interested in feeding the poor or, or, or feeding the hungry. So much. I'm, I think it's a great thing, but I don't do too much of my, waste too much of my time on it because, uh, and as a Buddhist, I believe that, that beings go according to their karma. And I mean, I'm not saying, you know, I'm going to denounce these, these people, but I'm trying to start with the, at the top. 
and find those people who can really make a dent in this world, can really change things in this world. And so I'm learning to teach those people, and help those people. But mostly I'm learning to teach myself, to make myself a better person. And so I, what, I, what I focus on is you know, explaining to people that the best thing you can do for this world, and so many people agree with this, the best thing you can do for this world is change yourself. If you want to end starvation, I think you've got... I think many people have tried. Many people have tried. And even better people than... Far better people than me have tried. And they were, they were unsuccessful, I think. There's still hunger in the world. People tried to end war. And there's a good example of Mahatma Gandhi. Mahatma Gandhi, he tried so hard, but look what happened in the end. They killed each other. Civil war, and they were killing each other in the streets. And then they killed him. I mean, it's not, not easy. Uh, so these things are all good, what people try to do, bring happiness and peace to the world. But if you don't bring happiness and peace to yourself first, you're always going to be failing and making, de making wrong decisions and so on. And you'll have such an uphill struggle because the people that you're dealing with are also not willing to let go. So unless we help ourselves and teach other people to become uh, more moral and virtuous and kind and caring people, I think there's, it's very hard to see that we're going to somehow change this world. But with sacrifice here, what it means is giving up some of our time, giving up some of our energy to help make the world a better place, starting with ourselves, starting with our own minds, to do something to make ourselves better people, just giving a little bit of time to uh, cultivate this uh, clear and pure and peaceful state of mind where we understand things for what they are, where we don't get upset and or attached to things. I feel so blessed in my life to, to have found such a, such a path and especially this on my birthday, seeing the fruit, seeing how many wonderful people I'm surrounded with and how happy they are uh, with the things that I, I can give to them. And people today, today I even give, this is the second talk I've given today. I went to this forest monastery to give gifts and suddenly they're like, oh, uh, I want you to give a talk for an hour. Can you do that? I'm like, my God, I've been up since four and the night before we were up all night we were recording CDs and so on but when I got in there it's like these people are so happy and we're doing such a good thing what we're doing is uh, I mean I think it's well, I'm, it's not bragging I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't think it was wonderful uh, the, the reason I'm doing it is because it's a, I think it's a wonderful thing not because I think I'm special in some way I think anybody can do this you just I think it's kind of. Uh, I, I, I hope hope everyone is able to come in and learn how to practice and how to teach and how to really understand reality for what it is. We don't have to go anywhere or be anything. This life is. Uh, it's just a ride. We don't have to go anywhere or be anything. But you know, at the end, there's a big stop and. We're going to have to get ready to face face the end. You know, we have to be ready to face life and face all of the difficulties. We've all gone through many difficulties in our lives. 
we didn't have to go through these difficulties and there'll be many more that we don't have to go through but we but unless we can cultivate these this understanding <coughs> that we gain through the meditation practice we're going to have to face so much suffering we're going to do so many things uh, wrong or we're going to approach pain and suffering in in a way which uh, which is based on, on delusion and misunderstanding, uh, which, which creates unnecessary stress and suffering for us. So I hope all of you are able to find the time and uh, give up some of your time to make this world a better place. And I'd like to thank you all for coming tonight. I'd like to again wish you all a happy birthday and uh, a good meditation practice. And I hope that everyone here is able to Put their hearts into the meditation practice so that you can come and tell me what is real. You can tell me all about reality. And I'm, it's not that I don't practice, but uh, it's that you don't have to listen to me. You find out what reality is, come tell me, and we'll see if it's the same as, as what all the rest of us have, have come to realize. So this is the, the talk for today. I'd like to encourage everybody to continue practicing, and uh, I'll see you again tomorrow. Have a good night.